Good morning, everyone. As Pastor Bullock said, I will be uh, teaching on predestination and the sovereignty of God. This, everything I'll be saying today is largely based off of chapter two of R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God. I recommend that book to anyone um, who hasn't read it before and to anyone who just hasn't read it in a while. I read that book for the first time, I think, when I was 14 or 15, and I, I got a lot out of it, and then when I came here, Pastor Bullock recommended it to Ted, and then I knew that I had read it, but I wanted to read it again, so I reread it um, at the beginning of this year, and even though I had already read it, it was very, it was, again, very impactful to me, and it's so it's very it's a very rich book and as pastor bullock said this is a v- simple topic it's not simple at all that being said i chose this topic because i i love talking theology with my friends and a lot of my friends are unreformed i think my only reformed friends are the friends i have here actually and so this topic comes up a lot and so i have a lot of experience arguing and debating this topic And so although it's not a simple topic to discuss, it's a topic I'm familiar with. When I've talked to people, my friends, there's usually like three different reactions to it. The first one, and the one that always surprises me, is that's not biblical. This whole thing, God's sovereignty and predestination, it's not in the Bible, which I always laugh because the word predestination is in the Bible. <laughs> it, they are wrong in that sense. And so the people who just have never heard of it and think that this is just some made-up thing. I've also gotten people who have shown interest in it, asked questions about it, but they're not fully on board yet, right? And then I've also had the people who've asked, why does it matter? Why does it, why, like, who cares, Uh, Today, I will be trying to give some tools for y'all to understand this better, and so that hopefully um, when you talk to your unreformed friends, um, it helps you understand this topic better, and... R.C. Sproul has a lot of great analogies. That's one of the reasons I've got so much out of his book is because he has good analogies. He explains things very clearly and um, precisely. So that's why I'm teaching this um, topic. But the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to start with how Sproul starts with defining predestination. He points out that different views of theology will define it differently. So he goes to a neutral source, um, the dictionary, which defines uh, predestinate. This is the Webster Collegiate Dictionary, which defines uh, predestinate as destined, fated, or determined beforehand. To foreordain to in earthly or in consequence of his foreknowledge of all events, infallibly guides those who are destined for salvation. Predestine is defined as to, def- to destine, decree, determine, 
appoint or settle beforehand. So Sproul goes to this dictionary because it's a neutral source that's not going to be reformed, unreformed. It's just trying to define what the word means. But Sproul says it's not super helpful. But what we do learn, predestination has to do with where we will end up. Sproul says pre is a relationship with time. Hence, Webster states beforehand. Destination refers to the location where we will end up. The most common theological views on the destination are heaven or hell. Catholics believe there is purgatory, which would be a third option, which is an option, but that's just temporary. You wouldn't stay in purgatory forever if that theology were biblical. Sproul says Protestants take the express route in that sense, right? We're just getting to our destination faster. But strangely enough, I've also met people who don't believe that there is hell at all, that we all end up in heaven, which I find very unbiblical, and I can't understand where um, those people can rationalize that um, view. The meaning of predestination in its most elementary form is that our final destination, heaven or hell, is decided by God. Only before we get there, but before we are even born. Another way to say this is from all eternity before we existed, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. The let is important because it states without God's divine intervention, we would have been destined to hell anyway. He allows us the freedom of our own will and lets us fall into our own sin. Many people do not admit as admit Christ as their Lord and Savior, say that they are going to hell because they are pretty good, right? They're good people. You know, I, I'm not a criminal. I don't lie all that often. They think that their good outweighs their bad. But we know that their bad definitely outweighs their good if we're just talking about good works. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the, but the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, to t- this is to say the punishment for sin is death. Not some sins, not a certain amount of sins, it only takes one sin. Sproul then asks us a question, Do our individual lives have any bearing on God's decision? Even though God makes his decision before we are born, he still knows everything about our lives before we live them. Does he take that prior knowledge of us into account when he makes this decision? The answer to that question depends on whether your view of predestination is reformed or not. Most church denominations agree that there is a doctrine of predestination. This is because, as I previously stated, the word predestination is in everyone's Bible. It's in like every version. That's, that's one thing I, I went to when my friend was saying predestination is not a biblical view. I went, he was a big King James Version guy. So I went to the King James Version to make sure that predestination, the word, was in that Bible, and it was. 
It's in, it was in his Bible. Ephesians 1.5 says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Romans 8.29 and 30 says, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified. And, vo- and those whom he justified, he also glorified. There are two, there are, these are two verses, but there are plenty more. The question that separates everyone is, by what basis does God make his decision? One thing Sproul wants people to acknowledge is the question of whether God knows who will win ju- who will like win the Super Bowl, or will I get a raise this year, just like all this other stuff. And that has to do with God's providence. And Sproul addresses that that is not what this chapter is about, or this is not what this book is about. It's not, so it's not also what the chapter is about. And so I'm, not, I'm also not going to address it here. But, but yes, God does n- know the subject um, of providence, although important, falls beyond um, the scope of this book, chapter, and in Sunday school. But yes, Psalms 103, verses 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over it all. So God knows all, but I'm not talking about that. I'm simply talking about predestination and the sovereignty of God in the Sunday school. So Sproul starts by saying a lot of people care about and protect the dignity of a freedom of man. If we start out with God, God is not a creature. He is a supreme being who has supreme dignity and supreme freedom. God has the ultimate authority and the ultimate freedom. He created us. The word authority has a key root of author. And so therefore, being the creator of all things, he has authority over all things. We have dignity and freedom, but we don't have as much dignity or freedom as God. We want as much dignity and freedom as God, which is why we sinned. Which is why we sin. Because it because if we had as much freedom and dignity as God, we would be God. And if we want that to be tr- and we do want that to be true, we want to be God. That was Satan's first attack is don't you want to be like God? And with that, we did want to be like God. But what Adam and Eve didn't realize is with being created in the image of God, to some degree, they already were like God in that sense compared to the rest of his creation. All power in the universe is from God. Even Satan has no power without permitting it. In the Star Wars movie, we hear that there is a balance between good and evil. The force, the side of uh, there's two sides of the force. There's the dark side, and then there's the good. That is dualism, and we do not believe that. If we did, why on earth should we have any hope that God's salvation plan would work? Why would we have any hope in God if that is really how it worked? Satan is a creature who, like us, is still subjected to God's sovereignty. In Job chapter 1, we see that Satan has to come to the courts of God to ask permission to test Job. 
he had to get permission. Like, that is, Satan could not have done that without God's approval of it or permitting it. Sproul tells a story, and this is my, this is my, my favorite part of the whole book, is this story right here. Sproul tells a story when he was teaching a class on the sections of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it was, chapter three being about um, being on this, these issues, all the students invited their friends because they knew it was going to be a fun, argumentative class. So he starts out with reading, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He then asked who disagreed with what he just read. A multitude of hands went up. Then he asked if there were any convinced atheists in the room. No one's hand went up. Then he asked if there were any convinced everyone who raised their hands to the first question of do you agree with the Westminster Confession about God's sovereignty? He said, if you disagreed with that, you should have also raised your hands to if there are any convinced atheists. And everyone, of course, gave him groans and complaining of you don't actually, like, that's not, you don't need to believe in God's sovereignty to believe in God. But what Sproul tells them is God fordaining whatsoever comes to pass is not a Calvinist view. It is actually a tenet of theism, which is why Sproul accused those students of atheists, even though they all confess to be Christians. So to say, to believe in God's sovereignty, like you can't, if you don't believe in God's sovereignty, that is a characteristic of God. A God can't be God without being sovereign. God for ordain whatsoever comes to pass simply means he is an absolute. He is absolutely sovereign over his creation. God can foreordain things in different ways. Everything that happens in this world happens with his permission. If he lets it happen with his permission, then he will also permit it. If he permits it, then he allows it. And if he allows it, he foreordains it. Something could not happen out of God's authority. Because if it did, it would mean that it has more authority and power over, the, over God, making God no God at all. Even if one molecule acted outside of God's sovereignty, then how could we have any hope of any of the promises given to us? Because if God can't control that one molecule, how can he control his salvation plan that he's created for us? Sproul gives the example of Bill Vukovich, who was killed driving in the Indy 500 because of a copper pen that cost 10 cents. Bill Vukovich was a magnificent driver and the best of his era, but he was not sovereign because a small piece of copper ended his life. Don't miss this. If anything at all is outside of God's sovereignty, then that thing is God It can't because it can operate without God. Notice that the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, says all the way through God, what it says all the way through. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is taken away, but rather established. 
Westminster Confession acknowledges that God is sovereign, but says he does not violate human freedom, nor is he the author of sin. Human freedom and sin are under God's sovereignty. So I'm about to um, switch gears um, and talk about how um, God's sovereignty reacts with or coexists with the problem with evil. So before I get into that, does anyone have any questions thus far? No? All right. So how is evil able to coexist with God, who is altogether holy and good? This is what atheists, atheists call the Achilles heel of Christianity. The most common answer is that evil came into the world by man's free will. Man is the author of sin, not God. It doesn't answer the question of how in the world where God made everything good, Genesis, he tells us that everything he created was good. It doesn't answer the question if man's free will is what brought sin in and he created man good. That doesn't answer the question of how sin entered the world. Man has a desire to sin, but he wasn't created that way. Man's desire to sin now is a result of original sin. God made man good. We could blame it on the craftiness of Satan when he tempted Adam and Eve, but that line of thinking has problems. We know that God thoroughly warned Adam. Satan contradicted God, and so Eve was left with a choice to rebel against God or do what he commanded. Even if we could blame Satan as if he quite literally forced us, force-fed us the fruit, it still doesn't answer the question because if he force-fed us the fruit, like he really did force us to do it, it still doesn't answer the question of where sin came from because Satan is a creature created by God. And in Genesis 1, he tells us that his whole creation is good. So we still have, it only backs the problem up. Of, so it can't be man. But where did it come from? Okay, Satan. Well, where did he? Where did sin come from in Satan? Still doesn't answer the question. Here lies the problem, says Sproul. Before a person commits an act of sin, he must have a desire to perform that act. James chapter one verse fourteen says, "But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire." When we have a sinful desire, it's still sin. We sin because we are sinners. Adam and Eve were created good, and their nature had not been corrupted at that point, like ours is. Sproul, nor anyone else, knows the answer to the question. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers. But what we do know is God is not the author of sin, because we know God's character, because that is something the Bible teaches us. How does this relate to the sovereignty of God? We know God foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That being said, make no mistake, God does not force us to sin. We must conclude that by God's wisdom, he allowed sin to enter the world. If he did not allow it, it could not have happened. Sproul says this, which is very insightful. We must conclude that God's decision to allow sin to enter the world was a good decision. This is not to say that our sin is really a good thing, but merely that God allowing us to sin, which is evil, is a good thing. God's allowing of evil is good, 
but the evil he allows is still evil. God's involvement in all this is perfectly righteous. Our involvement in it is wicked. We can see this in Job. Satan comes to God to allow him to test Job. Satan was not forced or told by God to do it. God allowed it, but God did not steal Job's possession or murder his family. Satan did it only because God allowed him to. The fact that God decided to allow us to sin does not absolve us from the responsibility of sin. Another example is Joseph, the end of Genesis. It was wrong for Joseph's brother to put him in the pit and sell him into slavery. That was wrong. That was sinful. But what came out of it was for a good that only God could have seen. That doesn't mean the brothers are innocent or free of that guilt, free of that sin by doing that. It was still sinful. But what came out of it was good. People may say, if God knew we were going to sin, why did he create us? A philosopher tried to frame God. No matter the way you answer the question, if God knew about sin, why did he create us? If God knew about sin but could not stop it, then he is not sovereign or omnipotent. If God knew about sin but chose not to stop it, then he is not loving or benevolent. Where his philosopher, where this philosopher is wrong is it doesn't make God unloving to create us without stopping sin from entering the world. God knew we were going to mess up, but he still made us. He had a plan to rescue us before we even brought the curse upon ourselves. The non-elect still take issue with the fact that it is not loving to elect some but not all. That assumes that God owes us. God God does not owe us anything. We owe God something, though. We owe him worship and praise. How arrogant for someone to say that a righteous God owes anyone salvation from eternal damnation when we don't have the power by ourselves to stop sinning against God constantly. The whole point of grace is that it is undeserved. If anyone deserved grace, it wouldn't be grace. If God let our decision of salvation be ours, we would never choose it. As it is written, none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Sproul says we have four options with a sovereign God in a fallen world. God could decide to, God could provide no opportunity for anyone to be saved. God could provide an opportunity for all to be saved. God could intervene directly and ensure salvation of all people. And the last option, God could intervene directly and ensure the salvation of some people. Most Christians rule out the first and third option. The second and fourth options seem the most palatable. A non-reformed person would, would most likely assume the second option, where everyone has a chance at salvation if they want it. The, ref, the reformed view is that if that was the case, no one would ever choose it because, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. Sproul says Calvinists see God doing far more for the fallen human race through option four than option two. But the non-Calvinist sees it in reverse. The problem for Calvinists 
is the relationship between the third and fourth option. So the problem here is that we know God has the power to change everyone's heart or else he would not be sovereign. So if he has the power, why not do it? The non-reformed answer is that if God changed the people's hearts, that would be violating their free will, which would be a sin, and we know God can't sin. But the problem with this answer is that God doesn't need our permission to do anything. The sinner didn't ask to be born, or born in the place he was born, or the financial situation he was born into. The question still remains, why doesn't God change the heart of everyone? Sproul says, I don't know. One thing I do know, if it pleases God to save some and not all, there's nothing wrong with that. God is not under obligation to save anybody at all. If he chooses to save some, that in no way obligates him to save the rest. Again, the Bible insists that it is God's divine prerogative to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Non-Reformed Christians would protest that it is not fair that God would not effectually call all. It really is just not equal, and that's fine. God does not treat everyone equal. Think about Jacob and Esau. God favored Jacob since he was born, and the Bible says that God hated Esau in Romans 9, 6-23. Starting at verse 6, it says, But it is not as though the word of God failed. For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are not his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offering, offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exhortation, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says, Pharaoh For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, so then, he has mercy on whomever he will, and he will harden whomever he will. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that... Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of 
his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before the glory. God does not, and we have... So with that verse being said, God does not, and he never has treated anyone equally. He treats people the way he sees fit. If God treated everyone fairly, we would all be going to hell. Westminster Confession, Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, question 20, asks, did God leave all mankind to perish in this state of sin and misery? And the answer, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and bring them into an estate of salvation by our Redeemer. So you notice there it says, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life. And it, so, meaning it pleased God to elect some and not all. No one ever said it had to be fair. We might prefer God save everyone, but we can't demand it. We must submit to the far wiser decision of God than man as the creator of the universe. If we ask the question, why doesn't God save everyone? Then we have to ask the question, why does God save anyone? Out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, this is what question number 20 of the Shorter Catechism tells us. God's sovereignty and human freedom. The question is how God's sovereignty relates to human freedom. As a student, Sproul was given an analogy. God's sovereignty and human freedom are like two parallel lines that meet in eternity. The problem with this analogy, parallel lines don't meet. If they did meet, they wouldn't be parallel lines. So this analogy doesn't work at all. If God's sovereignty and human freedom are really contradictory, one must be eliminated. That being said, there are no contradictions. A man is able to live a free life with a sovereign king. It is autonomy that cannot exist at the same time. Autonomy essentially means self-governed or self-ruled. No one is truly fully autonomous or else we wouldn't need governments or churches and we wouldn't need a sovereign God because we would be sovereign. We're not, though. Jordan Peterson, a secular psychologist, says, clean your room because that's the only part of your life you can really control. If we were truly autonomous and God was sovereign, Sproul says, it would be like an immovable object, an irresistible force meeting. If the immovable object moved, then it wouldn't be immovable. But if it didn't move, the irresistible force would not be resistible. The same goes for God's sovereignty. If we are autonomous, then God, w God is not sovereign. If God is sovereign, we are not autonomous. Full freedom is autonomous. But you can have freedom without full freedom. Sproul says, human freedom can never restrict the sovereignty of God. God is free. I am free. God is free-er. 
So if my freedom runs up against God's freedom, I lose. Although human freedom and God's sovereignty seem opposing and contradictory, they're not when you look closer. Sproul tells us that there are three words that we often get confused. Contradiction, paradox, and mystery. Contradiction is to say something is something, but it is also not that same thing. At the same time, such as a father can be a son, but that same father cannot be his own father, or not a father while being a father. That's a contradiction. Paradox is something that looks contradictory, but if you look at it closely, it is clear that it's not. Some people say the Trinity is contradictory, but it is completely logical. God is one in essence and three in person. It would be contradictory to say he is one in essence and three in essence. And a mystery. A mystery is something we know to be true. We just don't fully understand it. There are many mysteries in the Old Testament that we now understand from the New Testament. There are mysteries that we are discovering in science that we will keep on discovering new things. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. There are mysteries we do not understand now that we will understand in heaven. And there are mysteries that will always be mysteries because God won't reveal everything to us. So you can see that human f- the sovereignty of God and human freedom are not contradictory. Sproul also uses the example of um, a parent and a child. A parent has freedom, a child has freedom. But when that child, but the parent, the father, has more freedom than the child. So when the child is doing something that the parent doesn't like, the parent stops the child. They both have freedom, but one has more freedom. And it's the same way with God. Do you all have any questions about that? Any at all? Okay. It was simple. <laughs> no one's got any questions. Yeah. <laughs> One of the mysteries that, like, I always just, like, I have such a hard time wrapping my head around, and I don't think I ever will, is the fact that God has always existed. There's never been a time when God didn't exist. I can't wrap my head around that. It doesn't make sense to me, right? But that's what the Bible says, and I trust the Bible to be true. And so maybe in heaven there will be some, I'll get a better understanding of it. But So I wanted to go uh, real quick just to uh, Westminster chapter 9 about free will. Before I went to the high school class at the beginning of the year where Pastor Bullock uh, taught on this chapter, I did not really understand free will in the sense of, I, I knew what was true and what wasn't, but I it wasn't organized in a way in my mind of where I knew when you had certain free will and when you didn't. Um, and so Pastor Bullock laid it out uh, very easily for me, and so I wanted to lay that out for everyone real quick. So Pastor Bullock talked about the four states of man. Um, innocence, uh, fall, uh, fallen, the fallen state, 
uh, state of grace, and then glory. And so in each one, their free will reacts differently with those. Paragraph 2 of chapter 9, um, Westminster Confession. Man in his state of in, uh, innocency uh, had freedom and the power of will, and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably so that he might fall from it. So that's to say God has the power, or man had free will to do what was right and to do what was wrong. And then man by his fall, so that's the second state, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So that is to say, we have the freedom in our fallen state to, like, nothing's stopping me from moving left or right or, like, doing physical actions, but spiritual actions, I cannot do good. I do not have the the ability to do good in my fallen state. And then in the state of grace, when God converts a sinner and translates him to the state of grace, he he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and do that which is spiritually good, yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruption, he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but doth always will that which is evil. That is to say, when we are in our, when God transforms our hearts um, and justifies us, we are back to our uh, state um, of innocence where we can do right and we can do wrong. And it's that battle in our state of grace of until we die of doing right and wrong. And then the last state, uh, glory, the will of man is made perfectly immutable. The will of man is made perfectly and immutable, free to good alone in the state of glory only. So when we die and we go to glory, God we will not have the ability to sin, which is the ultimate freedom. Because God, as I already said, fully autonomous. We won't be fully autonomous at that point, but God doesn't have the ability to sin. And we will, when we die in our final act of sanctification, we won't have the ability to sin, which is more freedom than we have now. So I hope that was helpful. We are ending a little bit early. We can start setting up for the fellowship meal.